This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. It's not just a big story, it's an enormous story in terms of length from ProPublica Endgame, how the visionary hospice movement became a for-profit hustle. Half of all Americans now die in hospice care. Easy money and lack of regulation transformed a crusade to provide death with dignity into an industry rife with fraud and exploitation. Now, you'd think in 33 pages printed out in a font that I can read, it would include everything, but something is missing. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So, Terry, as a pastor of 30 years, not full-time ministry for the last 20 or so, but a lot of experience, I have spent a lot of time with hospice the various hospice organizations, and my experience has been from beginning to end almost entirely positive, but apparently there's kind of a dark underbelly to this whole industry. There certainly is, and I think in your introduction there was a key word that went by that I would say the story really needs to redefine, and that was the word visionary. What was it that made hospice a visionary movement? And I would argue that, as the story acknowledges in two paragraphs, out of, you know, what is really about a a 100-inch story, I believe, in most newspaper formats, hospice started as an explicitly Christian and religious movement. And I think if you went to most churches in America and you talked about hospice, they would immediately say, oh, yes, we've had contact Our clergy are regularly in contact with hospice people. Our own priest, the the founder of our Orthodox parish here in Oak Ridge, actually served as a chaplain for a hospice network for quite some time and was involved in a daily basis. So I think what we have here is two completely different approaches to hospice. And the story acknowledges that it started one way, and now it's turned into a, in many cases, fraud-driven, greed-driven, purely for-profit, secular phenomena. And I can't stress again, you did a good job of stressing this, this is a fantastic investigation as a crime story. My question is, to what degree did it need to contain a bit more contacts with the original vision of hospice? Did it need a few more paragraphs? For example, I would be interested in knowing, we get no indication in this article that the religious networks of hospice still exist, and that they're quite powerful. Probably every Roman Catholic diocese or archdiocese in America has an office dedicated to coordinating work with hospice centers. In some cases, I'm aware of Catholic dioceses that actually have a hospice of their own, help operate it. 
would that be the case among Lutherans? Well, I think probably in a less formal way, but yes, a very strong association with hospice organizations. Yeah, I think wherever you would find religious medical options, those religious medical options would probably have a legitimate, very carefully planned hospice branch or a hospice with which they cooperate. I cannot imagine that someone who is in a Southern Baptist hospital in America and receives a terminal diagnosis, I cannot imagine that they would be referred to some totally for-profit secular agency. That would just stun me if that was the case. So what we have here is there are two books of hospice in America. It seems that one is secular and for-profit, and one is essentially religious, spiritual, and non-profit. And I don't think the story ever lets the readers know that these parallel systems exist. Now, let me say this right up front. If there are fraud cases and scandals involving non-profit and religious-based hospice networks, that's a valid story, and that should be pursued. If there are clergy that are somehow involved in referring people to these for-profit, fraudulent networks, that would be a valid part of the story. But we don't see that. The closest we come in the story, and there's, there's no follow-up on this. And remember, this story talks about hospices in different parts of the country. But the vast majority, the entire horrifying opening act of this story is right in the heart of the Bible Belt. There's even a mention that one of the things the for-profit groups do is call up or get their hands on church weekly newsletters and look for people who are sick and then contact them to find out if their symptoms can be interpreted as fatal, at which point they're eligible for all of these benefits and wouldn't you want a free hospital bed and this and that and the other. The only problem is that you're now, you've stripped yourself to your rights of curative care. Anyway, the story does a great job of explaining how this fraudulent system works. But other than that brief nod to church bulletins, there's not any window in this story to the role that churches either could be playing or should be playing. Although late in the story, there's a reference to a word of deliverance hospice, a small town provider that briefly had this accused man on its payroll. And the, this hospice bought itself a Rolls Royce, which the government later confiscated. Well, word of deliverance sounds pretty religious to me. And in the context of the Bible Belt, I can think it's safe to assume that that's a hospice that at least wanted patients to think it was a religious organization. Well, I would have loved to have known more about that. But the minute you open that window to new content, I think you'd have to go back and admit that there are two worlds of hospice, two books, I called it earlier, and that the fraud is occurring in one and as far as we can tell, the fraud isn't occurring in the other, and that other network is the one that's connected 
to the spiritual and actively devoutly Christian roots of the hospice movement. That seems to me that could have been a part of this story. So just as a matter of pure journalism, it's a too broad brush approach to corruption in the industry. Some questions about a segment of the industry that wasn't corrupt might have been in order. Another specific question I'm curious about is where are the clergy in this story? I don't know that there are very many hospice organizations that have a constant influx of clergymen into them. Well, but there's your question. Which hospice organizations are you talking about? I would assume that you, as a pastor, as a Lutheran pastor, a church with pretty strong teachings on issues of death and dying, I would assume that any hospice you're going to be working with is probably going to be a nonprofit group that is very sensitive to the religious concerns of patients. That's safe to say? I think 20 years ago that would have been very safe to say. Nowadays, you probably have to keep your eye out. Really? Okay, then that's that's a valid part of the story. I'll bet you that you could have easily found some religious leaders who are concerned about that and would be willing to address how hard it is in some places to separate the, shall we say, the lambs from the wolves in this case. But if so, there's another religion angle to this story. I was reminded of a book when I was reading this story, when I kept thinking, where are these families' social networks? Where are the people who care about them? Where are the, I mean, where someone could, a fake nurse wearing hospital scrubs could show up at the door of someone's lower middle class home and talk them into signing away their medical rights in the space of about 10 minutes and put them on a care plan that's going to give them heavy drugs to prevent their pain and suffering, yes, but also not do anything to find out if they're actually terminal. And then we get into the fact that there are doctors who are linked up to these groups that kind of do judgment calls on whether someone might be terminal or they have a condition that could be terminal, they have heart disease, why continue to treat them for a long time? Let's say that they're terminal and we'll put them on hospice. The book specifically is called Alienated America, and it's by a writer named Timothy P. Carney. And the subtitle is Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. And this, this book doesn't have a large section on hospice or something, but what it does say is that there are large parts of America, like the parts of America where the entire opioid crisis has unfolded. These things tend to happen in parts of America where the social structures and social networks have collapsed, or they are, they're broken, or you simply have people that because of issues in their lives, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's multiple marriages, these people have lost touch with their churches, they've lost touch with their support networks. That to me sounds exactly like the people in this article who are set up to be hit with hospice fraud. These are people with no protection between them and a very harsh world, especially when they're elderly, they're sick, and they're on limited funds. The story does a great job of noting we live in a nation where elder care, especially when dementia is involved, elder care is really expensive and there isn't enough of it. We don't have enough mental health care of any kind in America. 
But this idea that there is a portion of the nation that doesn't have the support network of pastors, the support network of laity that come by and visit them at their house, that take them food. During COVID, our young people in our own church here in Oak Ridge, you know, in a several cases where you had people who were fighting cancer or whatever, these people couldn't come to worship. So the young people would go and stand in their yard and sing hymns outside their windows for them. And then the people could do prayer rites inside while the, you know, while the children sang to them. If you don't have these faith-based networks of support, wouldn't you be in a position where you are a likely target for the exact kinds of fraud that we see in this story? And once again, this story does a great job of getting the criminal enterprise side of the story. It seems to me it misses the side of the story about how are these people so vulnerable? What are the institutions that are missing from their lives and thus missing from this story? Let's talk about if it covered adequately the connection, which is where my mind went, which is where Wesley Smith's mind went when he was reading this article, at least he tweeted about it, the connection to physician-assisted suicide. Yeah, now he's an ethicist who is widely published on these subjects. And in his tweet, he noted that he interviewed her for a book he wrote called The Culture of Death. And she saw the hospice as a part of what the late Pope John Paul II, now a saint, would have said is the culture of death. And a part of the culture of death is leaning to policies and practices that lean toward euthanasia. And as I kept reading here, in cases where sometimes family members found that their own loved ones had been heavily drugged and sedated to the point that they couldn't answer questions, they couldn't respond, and they just were permanently placed on a downhill slide into conditions that would kill them, even if they were not terminal in other sense. Some of the few parts of the story that are kind of funny is when it talks about people who just seem to not want to die. And this creates a problem in the hospice system because you, you kind of like, do you have to keep like re-enrolling them? You know, what happens when somebody wants to go fishing, you know, and they're on hospice and going out and going for walks with the grandchildren and going fishing isn't good for your terminal diagnosis. So you have all of this. And as I read it, I kept thinking over and over, this is physician assisted, corrupt physician, I would stress, corrupt physician assisted suicide for profit with millions, potentially billions of dollars of taxpayer money going into the pockets of the people who are setting up these for-profit, in many cases, fraudulent networks. You see, talk about death with dignity, but there's no mention in here that there might be other people claiming the phrase death with dignity with other motives. You can't put everything in a story, even in one that's this long. But in this case, here's the key point I want listeners to think about when they read the story, and I think they should read it. I think they should have their pastors read it. One of the things you just simply have to look at in this story is, where are the church-based hospices 
in this story. Where are the spiritually framed ethical non-profit hospice networks? My father was a hospital chaplain, and he, he dealt with people in end-of-life issues all the time. And I know that hospice was very important. The concepts of hospice were very important to my own father as a former Baptist pastor turned hospital chaplain late in his life. You would not have to search far to find articulate religious voices as clergy, as ethicists, as medical practitioners, people who've dedicated their life to the proper use of the hospice philosophy. You could have had a couple of paragraphs from those people in this story and have added a completely second note to what is an important and valid story. For many people, death and dying is an intrinsically religious subject. How would you evaluate the story in light of that simple truth? Long, long ago, back in the early 1980s, I was interviewing Bill Moyers of CBS. And one of the things that a lot of people forget about Bill Moyers is that he was a, a Baptist pastor. He was an ordained Baptist pastor before he went into politics. A liberal Baptist pastor, I think everybody would agree, including him, but a Baptist pastor, someone with a seminary training and someone who knew the world of religion inside out. He gave a great image for how the media struggles with religion. And his image was that the media is tone deaf to the music of religion in daily life. And someone doesn't have to have ill intent or bias to be tone deaf. They simply can't hear what they can't hear. They can't see what they can't see. And that's the impression I get from this story. It simply doesn't hear the religious elements of what is an intrinsically religious subject. For what, at least 40 to 50 percent of Americans are, would be to some degree involved in a religious movement, and 25 percent, according to Gallup, intensely involved. And we're dealing with a subject, hospice which by its very nature was formed with a theological point of view about the meaning of life and the meaning of what the Mennonite culture would call the good death. Well, we needed more than two paragraphs on that. We needed more than just like, here's the tip of the hat to the history, especially if there are thousands and thousands of people still involved in valid hospice work in America and those valid Nonprofit religious networks remain one of the primary providers of hospice care in America. We at least need a paragraph telling us how big that other network is. One of the little angles that struck me, and this was very early in the story, very first paragraph, talking about Marsha Farmer admitting to her her hucksterism when it came to selling hospice to the vulnerable people. The paragraph, and she's looking for people to, you know, easy marks. Paragraph ends, at other times she scanned church prayer lists for the names of families with ailing members. That, to me, seemed like something that needed to be revisited here, at least by way of a caution, because that would be a great place to get your mark if you were in this business. Well, yeah, and it seems to me that Marsha Farmer, who is kind of the heroine of this story, 
or at least the first half of it, and a very important figure in it. It sounded like she's from Bible Belt culture and understands Bible Belt culture. Do we find out if she's involved in church? Do we find out if she's a part of several churches or she's a part of a network of churches? Do we find out if some of her ethical concerns about what was doing, what was going on, what these four prophets were doing to these people? Do we find out if, if her own concerns are in some way maybe even rooted in her faith? Is the heroine of the story acting from motives that are potentially religious? We could at least raise that issue. But that scanning of church prayer lists is what I was referring to earlier with church bulletins and church websites that are not locked to where other various people can get into them and read them. That's a valid point, and I, there might be people of ill will who misuse that information, but this story, like I said, it really opens with strong references to church culture and Bible Belt culture and Deep South culture, and then all of that dropped. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with the actual lives of the people involved in what is a hauntingly life-and-death story. I obviously wanted more. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the Weekly on Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thanks. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.